You know, I uh, I have to tell you, I looked down and and I knew that we had scheduled Joe Lieberman, but I'm looking down and I'm thinking, okay, I'm writing down the things I have to say to Joe Lieberman and, and get his opinion on. And then I realize, wow, uh, Joe and I have been friends for a very long time, and I treated him, and I and I've never said this before because this is pretty new. I, I is Joe on the phone? Joe. Yes. Hi. Good morning, Glenn. I it's just great, it's great to hear your voice. Thank really. you. <laughs> thank you. Um, let me just let me start here. I was yeah. very, very hard on you during the impeachment of Clinton, and you know that. I was, I was really very hard on you. And right. I have to apologize to you because uh, I think you were right. In watching Dershowitz, and I don't buy all of his stuff, but in watching right. Dershowitz, if it's not a political crime, if it's a crime, especially the one he committed, which was perjury about his marriage— I was so dead set on you can't have somebody committing perjury who's the president. But if we cross these lines, as I understand now from Dershowitz, we become a parliamentary system where it can really easily become a vote of no confidence. And then the president doesn't mean anything. Was was well, that the way you I looked at it at all? You, yeah. You, first off, you, you don't have to apologize. I we knew you would say that. go back decades and uh we had a disagreement but yeah. you're you're a, you're, a, you're a big man in many ways and one is <laughs> i think that's a fat joke back. <laughs> no, i give you i grant you awesome. total forgiveness thank you I really Joe. not thank at you. all How- but uh, you're, you're you're making a good point i tell you i spent a lot of time during the clinton impeachment trial um going back and looking at what the intention of the uh, was of the great uh, men who wrote our constitution about uh, impeachment and uh, it seemed to me that they were setting a very high bar for taking a president out of office and the reason is what has been discussed by uh, Dershowitz and others which is the the centerpiece of the system uh, the new country they were creating was elections you have to have consent of the governed for those who govern and you would only let congress intervene in that when it was an extreme situation, uh, really, that the country, I, I ended up feeling that the country would be in danger uh, if a particular president was kept in office. And of course, this was before the 25th Amendment, which came along a lot later, that, that set up a procedure for removing a president from office for physical or mental incapability. In so um, that's why they required two thirds vote in the Senate. And, uh, you know, I felt, and I said it then, that, that President Clinton's behavior was morally reprehensible. Yeah, you, yeah. And it wasn't just morally reprehensible, but it had an effect on the country because mm-hmm. uh, a leader, uh, I learned growing up, and I learned it a lot from, you know, from the Bible, that um, a leader is actually held to a higher standard than, than average people because the impact of immorality or wrongdoing is greater. So but long story short, I, I felt he had done something terribly wrong, but it, but it hadn't reached the threshold for impeachment. Have, and uh, I find this running, this is a very different fact situation, the whole business about Ukraine as opposed to Clinton Lewinsky, but in the end, it's the same test. And, and I think it's probably going to come now to a to a, uh, the, uh, uh, what I would call a reasonable and just conclusion, or let's put it this way, a conclusion 
that if Madison and Hamilton were here alive today, they would say this is what we intended. How would you vote today if you were sitting there? I probably vote uh, f- uh, for witnesses just because, uh, and, and of course, I'm, I'm being a little naive in about what, what I'm about to say. Yeah. I know there was some fear that if you had witnesses, it would be oh, 15, 17 witnesses. The impeachment trial would go on for weeks and months. But in, in the good old days, uh, we would uh, have negotiated a compromise across party lines, as we did, incidentally, on the on the rules for the Clinton impeachment trial, where they were adopted 100 to nothing here. It was a straight party line vote. And then, you know, I've hesitated to say this because I'm I'm not on the field anymore, so I haven't said how I would vote. But let me, me, we're getting, because I wanted to hear all the evidence, but let me just say that I thought Lamar Alexander's statement last night, although he he disagreed with what I just said about hearing witnesses, was was right, which is what the call, from all that I know now, the call that President Trump made with uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine was inappropriate, was wrong, it shouldn't have been done. But did it reach the point where we can say nine months before an election, I want to come back to that point, that he represents, if he keeps him in office, he represents a danger to the country, I, I don't think so. I think it's up to leave it to the people in November. In other words, the impeachment, uh, as our framers intended, I believe, was not meant to be punitive, to punish you either criminally or by taking you out of office. It was meant to protect the country until the next election. And right. the closer it is to an election, the higher the threshold for uh, convicting somebody president and removing him from office. So I, I think it's coming to a fair conclusion. Hopefully we can get back to governing. If not, we, we nice. can go on to the election and the, and the people will decide. Right. Um, let me switch uh, subjects. Uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was uh, in the Oval Office this week. They had a big announcement. I mean, I'm not a dummy. Uh, this, you know, helped Benjamin Netanyahu, I'm sure, in his fight back home. He's in right. some trouble. So I know that this is you know, uh, a lot of this is political. However, the the uh, peace plan that was given and honestly, the the words of President Trump to the Palestinians at that uh, press conference was, I thought, astounding. And everything a reasonable group of people should at least sit down and consider. But it was rejected right out of hand, and no one in the press is, they're barely even reporting this. What are your thoughts on this? Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you in your introductory statement uh, and, and what you said just now, Glenn. I mean, I think there was politics, but, but I would put it this way. The politics may have been more in the timing of the announcement. The politics wasn't in the substance. I thought this was the result of real... Uh, effort and persistence uh, directed by President Trump, uh, but really carried out by by Jared Kushner and and the others who worked Mm -hmm. uh, in the administration for it. And And Kushner is being Kushner is being mocked by the press. Uh, I saw an interview with him and said, well, what what makes you an expert? And he said, well, I mean, uh, you know, I've been working on this a long time. Just in the last year, I've read probably 25 different books on the different, you know, peace process. And the headline was, oh, he thinks he can read 25 books and be an expert. I mean, it's just. Well, that's that's nasty. I give him a lot of credit for what he did. Talked to a lot of people in the Middle East, including uh, some of the Palestinians. And this 
this is a total new beginning, and I think it's hopeful. And really, this peace plan offers, uh, in other words, the what, what everybody was trying for the last, uh, well, since the Oslo Agreement in 19, I think it was 93, um, everybody was trying to fit within that format totally, and uh, nothing was happening. And here again, all the efforts that President Trump, Kushner were making with the Palestinians were going nowhere. So they simply decided, we're, we're going to begin a new conversation. Mm-hmm. And they did. It gives uh, uh, Israel security and a lot of what it wanted. But it honestly, as you've said, think about it, it gives the Palestinians a state that's about twice as large as the territory they now govern, and a capital in East Jerusalem, which they've wanted, and a promise of $50 billion. It's, it's uh, unbelievable. Prove the life of it their is. people. Yeah. It's un- it's, it's un- it, Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt you. It's, it's, it's staggering, mm-hmm. I think, how good this is at the first initial offer. And yes, there's no interest... That no interest by the current Palestinian leadership, in, which has proven... I, I went during my time in the Senate over and over again, just about every time I visited Israel, I went to Ramallah to see President Abbas of the Palestinian Authority. Nice man, pleasant to be with, good to talk to, but, but he has proven himself incapable of being a leader who will take the risks for peace and prosperity for his own people. But, Glenn, you pointed... Uh, a few moments ago to the really significant difference uh, in response to the really significant differences in this Trump uh, Middle East peace plan, which is the response of the Arab world. Oh, my gosh. Um, These are the people that lined up against Israel. They lined up against them. They're all they are. And correct me if I'm wrong, Joe, they are more pro-Israel, at least sounding today than the Democratic candidates that are running for president. Well, I, I can't say every candidate, but some candidates, Democratic candidates, yes. are absolutely right. And, uh, you know, there you had in that room, I was there in the East Room at the White House on Tuesday, mm. you had the ambassadors from the United Arab Emirates, big, important country, ally of ours, from Oman and Bahrain. And then the two giants, really, in the Arab world, Saudi Arabia, host of the the two holy mosques of Islam, and Egypt, which has been the historic center of the right. Arab world right. and the and the largest population in the Arab world, both saying, uh, not endorsing every element of the plan, but su- supporting it and directly calling on the Palestinians to come to the table and begin to negotiate. Right now, based on what's preceded in recent years, uh, don't expect it from this Palestinian leadership, but maybe we'll be surprised. Anyway, I think, you know, President Trump is, to put it mildly, unconventional <laughs> as a leader. And, right, and sometimes this upsets me, but other times, because he is willing to be unconventional and what the folks in the high-tech world call a disruptor, yep. Uh, disrupt. He he does things or, uh, that enables things to happen. Yet yep. uh, you look at it and you say, you know what? This is something we ought to try. And believe me, this is a step toward peace in the Middle East. Right. If the there come when and if there's a Palestinian leadership, and when there will be when, if now a Palestinian leadership that is willing to get engaged with Israel. And you're right. This is a 
this is a first offer, if you will. Uh, it can be changed. It, there's some things that Israel won't allow to be changed, but some things can be negotiated, and the Palestinians ought to, the people of uh, Palestine, the Palestinian people ought to rise up yeah. and push their leaders to go to the table with Israel in a process, as the Saudis and Egyptians said, under the auspices of the United States. We, right. we can mediate, and they can get something done. Uh, Joe, if you will hold on one minute, I want to continue our conversation. Let me take one minute and right back with Joe Lieberman. Uh, I mean, it's nice to be able to have a conversation uh, with a Democrat uh, and and just be able to disagree uh, and yet move forward. Those long, long gone are those days, it seems. So one last question with Joe Lieberman uh, on the Israel peace plan. Uh, Joe, do you think that because Saudi Arabia and Egypt and UAE, they're all part of this and it seems sincere that there has been enough ground change in the Middle East that the tide may turn uh, if the Palestinian Authority just is is, you know, stiff arming any kind of peace talk do you think that this tide turns at all i do i i think the tide is turning uh the reality is that there are um there, there always have been covert um set of relations and and, yeah. and where it was in the mutual interest between israel and some of the arab countries and of course there's there's a, a piece of, of different uh effect of this between israel and and uh, Egypt and Israel and Jordan, but it's changing now. Part of it is that they have a shared. The Arabs and the Israelis have a shared fear of Iran. Uh, mm-hmm. But the other is that the changes are occurring uh, of modernization throughout yes. the Arab world. It's not coming as fast as we would have liked, but they're beginning to see Israel as an ally, including economically. So. You know, I'm I'm hopeful if the if the look, look the most serious people don't talk too much in the Middle East when I visit, and I've continued to go since I left the Senate, and I particularly visit Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Egypt. And um, what they really want to talk about is uh, reforms within the system, economic growth, and what are we, the U.S., going to do with them about iran there's very little discussion right. about the palestinians i don't know if the palestinians appreciate that right but look the next step and i know the trump administration is working on it is to have some of the arab com- countries enter into what would be called a non-aggression pact with israel not full diplomatic right. relations but the beginning of an easing sure and, and i think that that can happen uh before long so Thank God for that. It's progress. I've only I've only got about a minute, minute and a half here. Um, Iowa is Monday and the Democratic Party is is really at war with itself. Um, it, you have socialists beyond just I want a bigger, you know, Medicare uh, system. We're right. talking actual socialism that will dramatically change us. They're talking about an end of capitalism. Some of them. Um, right. And it looks like Bernie Sanders might win the Iowa caucus. He'll probably win New Hampshire, maybe win Nevada. What do you see happening in the Democratic Party? Where are they headed? 
Well, you're not going to be surprised to hear that uh, this troubles me greatly because this, over time the party, certainly in foreign policy, has changed from where it was when I joined, when John F. Kennedy was president. But now uh, the, the position, you know, we've developed a kind of regulated capitalism in America, and overall it's worked pretty well. You could say it's too much, too little, but the, the, the philosophy that Bernie Sanders represents really is state control of increasing parts of our economy. It's not what America's been about, not what has given us our growth and opportunity. And really, it's up to the voters in the primaries and who comes out. If 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 the center left and the center in the Democratic Party comes out, Biden or Bloomberg or Klobuchar will do better. But right now, I would say the dynamism is with uh, Sanders. And uh, the party is going to be very different than it was before. And I, I personally don't think Bernie can win and democrats ought to think about that thanks joe lieberman as always thank you glenn you great bet. to talk god bless uh senator joe lieberman boy don't you pine for those days daniel hannon is a friend of freedom he is a guy that i i met probably 15 years ago i don't actually know if we've ever actually met but we've talked to each other via satellite so many times over the years he has worked 17 years to get out of the european parliament he was a member of the european parliament he led the campaign to get his job canceled um brexit day is finally here it's happening at 11 p.m uh european time uh that'll happen this this afternoon here in america and we wanted to check in on a day I wasn't sure was ever going to come with Daniel Hannon. Welcome, Daniel. Thank you, Glenn. It's a real pleasure, as always, to be with you. And I'm delighted to say it's actually happening at 11 p.m. UK time. European UK. time is something different. I, I, okay. I should, just, just to make clear to your listeners, I'm not a European. I'm a Brit. <laughs> so uh, you're here and the markets haven't collapsed and the seas aren't on fire and yeah. there's going to be food in people's mouths and grocery stores will be open tomorrow. I'm looking out of my window. I don't see any dinosaurs or any asteroid strikes. There isn't World War Three. In fact, not only that, Glenn, but the UK economy has outperformed the Eurozone for the last couple of years. We have more people in work than ever before. In our history, the stock exchange has surged, our exports are up, our manufacturing is up. We've attracted more inward investment than any country in the world except China. So I think we can reasonably look forward with some optimism and confidence to what the future holds. So, Daniel, what does this mean? Uh, I mean first of all, let me, let me just say this. A, congratulations. B. Thank you. I appreciate that. You guys are, you did what we did in you know 1776 except we had to have a war over it because you guys were so stupid and stubborn but um uh, but when i'm watching when i watched nigel farage's uh, speech a that i mean i couldn't believe what they did to him in the end they made his point um but i thought this is a shot heard around the world just like our declaration of independence was it, it you did a very american thing and you did it right. You 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 did it without arms and riots. I mean, that's a remarkable thing you guys have just pulled off. Well, I, I could turn that around and and channel Edmund Burke, who was of course an MP at the time of the revolution, and say that you guys did a very British thing in 1776, which was to to take to its logical conclusion the arguments in favour of personal freedom. Hmm. 
and democracy. Mm -hmm. But I tell you this, no country that I can think of ever got poorer as a result of becoming more self-governing. And I, I do think we are feeling something of the mood of optimism that swept over uh, the, the then colonies in, in 1776. I was looking at, uh, uh, at John Adams's letters, and he, I, he was probably the gloomiest of the founders, you know, to be <laughs> pessimistic about the fallen nature of man. Mm -hmm. But when the, on the day of the Declaration of Independence, even he got caught up with the mood, and he wrote to his wife, Abigail, through all the gloom, I can see the rays of ravishing light and glory. I can see that the end is worth more than all the means and that prosperity will triumph. And you know, Brits are a fairly reserved people. We wouldn't put it in such florid terms, but that is the mood here. There are parties going on all around. There are, you know, just I'm, I'm speaking for you, uh, to you from London. There's a crowd a little bit down the road outside Parliament, uh, just happy, good-natured people waving the flag. And as I walked past a moment ago, they were singing Sweet Caroline. So good, yeah. so good. Yeah. That's so <laughs> it's, funny. It's, it's, of course, it's a great thing to feel uh, that you're, you're back in charge of your own affairs. Yeah. So what do you think is going to happen with the European Union? Because as I, I watched that and I connected to what he was saying about an out-of-control government, that that's not what we signed up for. Um, it's corrupt. You are you're ignoring us. Uh, you go your own way. You belittle us and you belittle the people. Yeah. And I thought if I can relate to it, surely the people in France or Germany or, uh, you know, or Norway or Sweden, they're looking at that going, yeah, you know what? What are we doing? Yeah, and that's the thing that they're really scared of. How does the EU respond to Brexit? Britain's going to be fine, but what's going to happen in the Eurozone? And actually, again, I don't want to, over, I don't want to kill this metaphor or this, this parallel by overdoing it, uh, but since you, you started it, uh, again, there's a fairly <laughs> No, it's actually the Brits with... that started it just by... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, you started the parallel. <laughs> the, 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 the Brits immediately after Yorktown were in the same kind of mood that Brussels is in now. They were hurt and angry, but it didn't take long for the British government to realize that its own interests depended on having a good, cordial relationship with the new country. And so the, the new administration under Shelburne in, in 1782 said, we're going to open all of our ports in, the, in Britain and in the Caribbean to all American vessels. We're going to renounce all our claims on all the Transappalachian territories. You know, Adams and, and Jay and Franklin couldn't believe the generosity. But from a British point of view, it was the correct thing to do because we understood that free trade is good for everybody, that, it, that, that we wanted to have rich neighbors because rich neighbors make good customers. And, well, and that's how it worked out. Now, Let's remember that you did, you did you did come back in in eighteen twelve to you know start a yeah. war and and burn our like White surely House. Surely the most ridiculous war ever, right? That, uh, <laughs> the reason that the war began was over before the first shots were fired, and the only significant engagement took place after the peace terms had been signed, but before news had reached New Orleans. <laughs> right, but but uh, but, uh, but but I mean the the, the the interesting thing is the EU could respond to the Brexit vote by saying, OK, I wonder why we got that wrong. Maybe yes. we, we become a bit too remote. Won't happen. Maybe we need to reconnect. Maybe the Italians or the Dutch or the Poles or the Danes will feel similarly. Let's try and anticipate. Let's try and devolve a little bit of power. But, you know, so far, they've done exactly the opposite. They said, oh, great. Now that the Brits are out of the way, we can have a European army and we can have a European tax system and we can have more and more power uh, for the centre. And I think if they insist on taking that line, then the EU will fall apart sooner rather than later. Hmm. 
So, Daniel, I've never understood the parliamentary system. Never understood it. I mean, you guys seem to be going through prime ministers like water. Uh, we have a different system with our impeachment, but that's really what we're talking about now is whether you can impeach someone uh, that didn't do anything illegal, may do stuff that you didn't like. But but really, if impeachment is more of a vote of no confidence, which our yeah. founders never intended, what do yeah. we what do we look like uh, to you A as a historian? Can you give us some perspective where you're not connected to it? Uh, and 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 be just as a as a Brit. Well, I mean, I, I'm now going to say something that is is probably guaranteed to offend every single person listening to you, whether they're a Democrat or a Republican, whether they support or oppose the impeachment. Which is that I don't think that Donald Trump uh, colluded with Russia, and I don't think that he uh, behaved in an impeachable way over the Ukraine business. But I think that what we know of his behavior is so unpresidential and, and so indicative of bad character and bad judgment that that should count against him politically. And I, I reckon that statement has offended absolutely everybody because one of the things that is very striking about the U.S. discourse at the moment is that everyone has to be 100% one way or the other. Yes. Everyone has to be, you know, and to say anything in between, to say, for example... It's great that Donald Trump is cutting taxes, although it's a pity he lied about releasing his own tax return. Or to say, it's fantastic that he's deregulating, really overdue. But, you know, what a pity that he thinks it's okay to mock the family of a a deceased American serviceman. You never hear anybody saying those things because it's become so tribal and so polarized. And I've got to say, that does worry me. You know, the, the, the extent to which people in the U.S. now see the other side as enemies rather than as fellow citizens with a different opinion. And, and a, a great democracy can only take so much of that. So as a historian, you've watched us for a long, long time. Uh, you know our history. Uh, I think it was Churchill said one of the great, greatest things about uh, Americans is after they've tried everything else, they finally do it right. Uh, do we, do we, uh, how do we get out of this one, Daniel? Yeah, I mean, look, America is still the greatest republic on earth. Sure. It is a fantastic, fantastic country. And now you're uh, only saying that know, because it's true. But uh, <laughs> yeah, but it is true. It is true. Yeah, I mean, you liberated millions of people from tyranny. You put the flag of your country on the moon. You you created uh, the most open and free system of government on earth. And those things have deep roots. But I would say, you know, they they depend on people valuing the rule of law and the process and the rules. And the, the, the thing that I find alarming about the U.S. now is how indifferent people are to due process when they happen to favor a particular outcome. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, you know, it's a trivial example, but I would say that both Barack Obama and Donald Trump exceeded their powers and sidelined Congress in order to tamper with the rules on immigration. Obama did it to liberalize immigration. Trump did it to tighten immigration. But the number of people who, who condemned them both, you could count pretty much on your fingers. You know? And the thing is, either, either that's right or it's wrong. It, it's not right when it happens to be your guy, but wrong when it's the other guy. And the, 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 as soon as you lose sight of that and you get into this kind of anything goes, that's when you risk becoming like, you know, 
Guatemala or Peru or, or, or somewhere else that has, has had a, a much weaker history of the rule of law and of, of peaceful democratic politics. Daniel Hannon, it is always great to uh, to talk to you and your your insight is great. And I, I'm so happy. And there are millions of Americans that are cheering for your freedom uh, today to chart your own course and to be your own country and to fly your flag with pride. Thanks well, we you. appreciate that, Cousins. Right back at you. God bless you. Thank you. Daniel Hannon from London. It's Friday. Welcome to the Glenbeck program. Um, uh, I have a podcast that usually comes out on Saturday. Uh, it's 90 minutes. I sat down with uh, Carter Page, who I found a very interesting person, and we'll, we'll talk about that some later time. But I want you to hear uh, this podcast. 90 minutes. This is the guy that the FISA courts, FBI, everybody lied about uh, to get the Donald Trump campaign spied on. For Russian collusion. So this is the beginning of it. Uh, well, he has been exonerated and they found out that they were doing all this stuff illegally with FISA. Uh, I talked to him about, uh, you know, are you going to sue? Well, yesterday he filed uh, his first of many lawsuits. Here he is talking about having to find a cure for the nation. You know, we're still all getting blocked. So, yes, you know, there was some hard evidence that we're getting. We got a 480-page Inspector General report, which came out in December of uh, 2019. But, you know, it's the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more. I guess I'm asking, is it kind of like a friend who thought this weekend that, he had cancer. Thought I, I spent a lot of time with him this last weekend. I'm sorry. Talking him, talking him through that, and and he would go through periods of real despair and then real hope. And because I've been through this before, I I, I wondered how he was going to react once he got the news, one way or another. Um, because there's something about not knowing for sure that gives you a little bit of hope. You know what I mean? So was it is it kind of like that moment when you find out that the government has been reading everything, been watching everything, that you 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 had a little bit of hope that maybe that's not really going on? Glenn, look, what I know for sure and what I I've known for sure for over 3 years already is using your analogy. There is a serious cancer that our country is suffering from. Based, you know, which started with this uh, metastasizing of the uh, Russia collusion hoax. To me, you know, in answer to your question, that is the biggest problem and, you know, thing at the forefront of my mind. There's a lot of things that I'm starting to do to, you know, help uh, help find a cure, if you will, for. for both myself and for our entire country, but and litigation uh, yeah, is yeah. one of those things. Absolutely. Your confidence level? I, I'm, I'm very confident that my case is incredibly strong. The thing which sometimes gives me a little bit of caution is I know what's been done in federal courts mm-hmm. by false filings by. U.S. Department of Justice and private institutions, the DNC, 
and media organizations in terms of some of my initial uh, battles. So, um, and look, I mean, that's kind of that, that caution is, you know, reason for that caution is a key storyline in uh, the inspector general report, right? Those 17 errors and omissions. So what, you know, the caution, you know, I know my case, if we're kind of basing things exactly upon the facts and, you know, what actually. You're listening to Glenn Beck. Hey, the surest way. 